0: welcome 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 to another episode of coming up next the podcast episode 151 to be exact uh, thanks for streaming or for downloading the show however you choose to consume the podcast Uh, You can subscribe over at comingupnext.com.au, be it uh, Stitcher, iTunes, Podbean. Podcast is also available on Spotify and YouTube, so plenty of options for you. And uh, the show comes to you for free each and every week if you feel like showing your support jump on one of those platforms and leave a rating and a review. I know it seems pretty arbitrary, but it does really help push the show along and keep bringing you guests, keep me bringing you guests each and every week. And speaking of guests each and every week, thank you to Corey Chen for coming on last week's episode and uh, and sharing her story as a director in the Australian TV world. If you haven't checked it out, Episode 150, comingupnext.com.au. You can find it there. Romy Trower is my guest this week for episode 151. She is an actor turned writer and director with her first feature film, What If It Works, available on iTunes and across many of the other on-demand platforms. I recommend checking it out before you listen to this interview or after you listen to this interview. It's a really great film. Uh, We get into the process of getting that up. We get into Romy's career, the usual philosophical stuff. And we're going to get into it right now. Over to the interview. I watched... uh, I watched... What If It Works last night Um, and I mean first of all it's a really great film and congratulations was the festival that you were at was that for or with uh, What If It Works?
1: Yes it's they're still kind of trickling on which is actually really nice because after having gone through the marketing of a low budget film which is quite you know intensive um, last year it was actually a real pleasure to sort of go back over to the states a couple of times since and just like enjoy and chill and, you know, be back at festivals because they're, they're really the reward, I feel like.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, when you, I guess, putting something together over such a long period of time, particularly when I'm sure it's not financially rewarding. No. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> financially rewarding? Wrong game. Yeah. yeah.
0: I think it's the, <laughs> the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow is being able to take it to places and go and enjoy the life of the film with people who are enjoying the film.
1: Absolutely. hundred percent.
0: Yeah. But I guess it's probably a weird, uh, a weird moment when it's available on iTunes or on, digital platforms but still you're going to these festivals and and doing Q&As and things like that with it.
1: Yeah. Well, I guess the thing is it's available in Australia only. Right, yeah. Um so we've got a distributor for the US um and it's going to be released I think in June. So still milking the whole, you know, right. novelty of the festival <laughs> Q&A over there. Um yeah.
0: There must be like kind of is is there a differing experience between watching it with an audience in Australia say in the Gold Coast versus watching it with an audience in America
1: um yeah i've 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 been in a number now and sort of thought to myself like what are the differences and sometimes you feel like oh it was basically exactly the same they laughed at the same moments they gasped at the same moments um but uh, over this festival, I came to the conclusion that um, the Americans seem to have an even greater love for the drag queens right. than the Australian <laughs> audiences. And it's not to say the Australians don't love and appreciate them, but the, uh, I don't want to give anything away. But they, yeah, they make a lot of noise, that audience, um, yeah. when it comes to some of the drag queens. Uh, scenes so yeah that was something I noticed this time I, mean, I thought I noticed it in Alaska <laughs> I thought I noticed it in uh, you know San Jose I'm like this is definitely the difference it's the drag queen so
0: yeah yeah that's cool so did you, you grew up in Melbourne?
1: I did yes
0: and was I noticed that you were similarly to me wanting to or pursuing a career as an actor before you moved into film. Was it something that you were always doing at home throughout childhood or into adolescence?
1: Uh performing or storytelling and yep, all of the above. Yeah, I think I was always the family storyteller. I think (laughs) I was a storyteller amongst my friends too. Was always happy to, you know, imitate and tell stories in accents and, you know, play characters and direct my friends and what they were doing while we were playing and just generally be bossy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I was preparing for it, you know, my whole life probably. But I was always interested in, in performing and writing at school as well. I sort of tried to, you know, rewrite my own scenes in the house plays, which was probably illegal. And <laughs> somehow I think I got away with it a couple of times. Um, so, yeah, it would have started with writing and performing and then, you you know, next thing you you do is you end up producing because that makes sense. And who else wants to produce? You know, your whether it's your play or your first short film. And um, by the time you're writing and producing, and realizing that an acting career is, you know, a hard slog, and right. and 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 you know, probably not my favorite element of the process. Once I'd once I'd enjoyed the producing and writing side of it more, so um, it was a natural evolution to actually want to direct. Uh, you know the films so yeah I think it was kind of a natural progression.
0: Mm. Do you remember the first time that you create anything or performed or whatever it may have been that kind of spurred you down this path?
1: Like a lot of kids I was dressing up in stuff and like I said whether it was relatives that were over kids or adults or you know friends i basically was always rounding everybody up getting them in costume and making them perform something um i spent my family holidays doing the same thing other kids were playing sports they were on the beach i was like in a hall somewhere rounding up people to do like a dance routine or um monologues or something (laughs) sorry i was definitely strange Um, probably should have seen some more sun, didn't, but, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that was, that was kind of, I think it was out of my control, something that was happening.
0: Were your parents, uh, did they encourage your quirks or were they sort of more trying to push you down a lawyer, doctor
1: uh, well, interesting. You say that my, both my parents are doctors, okay. <laughs> so you must have had a Felt the aura around me that said I'm the black sheep in the family. That I mean, it's uh, just decided like, to uh, go the arts path. We're both
0: Jewish, you know. <laughs> yeah. more than likely that. Yeah, our it's parents one going the other, right? Be wanting to push us into being lawyers yeah, or doctors. It's
1: lawyer or doctor? Obviously, it's lawyer or doctor. Arts? Yeah. Ah, what? You know, that's for like Saturday mornings up until you're about sixteen, <laughs> and then you need to forget it and yeah. uh, get a tutor. Do that on the side. Yeah. Exactly. Um, So, look, they probably would have thought it was a better idea to become a doctor or a lawyer. Um, I'm pretty sure my dad said, why don't you do law performing arts at university? I was like, I might just do the performing arts. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Just the law bit didn't really interest me. Um, So, look, they were pretty good. I think they they did encourage um, my interest in in the arts and they themselves are very interested in theater and film and it's probably their fault let's blame them because they
0: absolutely took me
1: along all the time to things that i was probably too young to even appreciate but um, there's a big age difference between me and my brother. And so I, I felt like I was often just with my parents and their friends going to theater shows, going to films, and then trying to get somebody to explain to me what it all meant. Mm. <laughs> um, so I think they're probably responsible for developing that curiosity. Yeah. Um, so let's blame them. Yeah, mm. I,
0: I agree. It's yeah. Your dad, your fault, mum and dad. Yeah. Uh, do, do you recall any like shows or, um, or films that kind of you felt really connected with or that influenced you later on
1: um i don't really think i can honestly say that there's one show or film i think i just have a have general memories of going to lots of things all the time it was like pretty regular activities i i don't have that story that i guess a lot of filmmakers have which is i watched this one film when i was 11 years old and it was that moment that i knew i don't have that (laughs) i know it's a good story i should probably make it up but i don't have that moment
0: for me, it was Home Alone. Nah. Probably Home Alone too. actually. I remember yeah. watching that in the cinema, yeah.
1: Yeah, that's so funny. Kauly Culkin, yep.
0: Yep. He made a good career for himself.
1: For a while. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, when you came out of school, you did uh performing arts, not law, just performing yeah. arts. Uh And was that uh the Monash degree? Yeah. Yeah. What was the... What was the process, I guess, for you coming out of school? Did you have an agent or did you have kind of designs on, you know, working professionally as an actor immediately or did you want to go and study? What was the – were you writing as well?
1: I think I had the – I think I was a little confused as to what the best path was and you could probably – with all due respect to Monash University that, you know, is very wonderful in many ways, it was for me probably not the best option in terms of a performing arts degree – um, looking back, you know, why didn't I, I did, you know, very well in, uh, in drama and at school. And I, I look back and I think, why didn't I try to go to the VCA? Like what, what exactly was stopping me? Mm. And I think just being young and naive and, and also having come from a family where everybody is either a doctor or a professor or a lawyer and feeling this, this academia kind of, you know, there was this pressure towards that sort of stuff. I think I thought, right, the best option would be to go to like a good university, like Monash, <laughs> where it will be a recognised degree, and I'll but I'll do performing arts, I'll do what I want, but I'll do it at, a, at, a, at like a proper university, and yeah. somehow that's you know going to assure me of getting a job if it doesn't all work out. And like, what a ridiculous plan! <laughs> like. Uh, Yeah, so I think that's actually how I ended up um, at Monash. Um, But the thing is, I I never went with the backup plan and I'm really not sure what sort of job I thought performing arts was going to get me anyway. Um, But I finished performing arts and I did get an agent. So I wanted to, you know, start doing acting work um, as soon as I could. But my backup plan then uh, veered off a little bit and I was like, okay, I can see that this arts degree is probably not going to be like a big safety net. So, um, I I did an internship at Roadshow, the distributor, um, and I did a masters in communications, and my thesis was in film distribution. So yeah. that I found a I found like a, a, an idea for an interesting backup plan, which I haven't you know uh, chased after. However, it probably did help me in this last year. Um, that's passed where, you know, um, we had a distributor to market the film but when it's low budget and when you don't have a huge amount of, you know, spend for that marketing, like the best thing you can do as a director is be involved if the distributor is happy to have that sort of relationship with you. So, I really wore a marketing hat pretty much all of last year. Um, So, I'd like to say there was a point to me having done that degree.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I would agree with that. And you... We're working, uh, you know, still as an actor on shows like Neighbours and uh, Kick and um, Offspring, you know, doing roles for that but concurrently trying to decide whether or not you wanted to work behind the camera or was that while you were doing your Masters or how did that kind of start?
1: It it actually started um, after I finished um my masters i think i mean no i think i had i was always i was writing but it was theater that i was writing because that's what was easy to produce and do and you know that's what i was doing at university you can write monologues you can write a little play you can get a few mates and it doesn't cost you much and it's relatively easy (laughs) compared to you know making a film um but i was probably always more interested and curious about filmmaking uh, Than I was really about becoming a, like a theatre director, and I guess having done the acting stuff, I had the experience on the other side of the camera in terms of what is it like to be on set? You know, what does the script look like? What is a what is good? What do I feel is good direction? What do I feel is weird direction? That sort of stuff. So I had that kind of perspective, and i I'd, I'd gone to live in New York. Well, it was meant to be a three week trip, and it turned into an eighteen month stint. <laughs> Full of colourful characters, which um, I ended up writing a play about. Um, it's called Too Beautiful for Garbage, and I actually wanted to make a film out of this material. But um, at the time, I was bouncing off um, director Richard Lowenstein, who was helping me sort of work on the script, and 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 he suggested actually. He said, "Well, look, making a film's like pretty hard. Why don't you use the material?" make a play out of it first test it out see if audiences respond get a little bit of traction it'll probably be a lot easier for you to you know embark on making a film i was like yeah that's a really good idea so back i went to the theater thing as a what i thought was a first step towards this making of this film called too beautiful for garbage and in the end the play went really well i did it as a solo show and um it did help me in a number of ways open a few doors um but um, I still haven't made a film called <laughs> Too Beautiful for Garbage. Um, I realized that set in New York and, with you know, characters that were from anywhere but America or Australia, it was probably a little bit overly ambitious as a Quite first uh, feature film. I well, didn't want to make a short. I wanted to make a feature. So that's still sitting there. And I, I went and made a Melbourne story as my first feature, but, of course, did do a couple of shorts before that. I was so going to
0: say, so you made uh, a couple of shorts, uh, which you did act in yep um, what was the I mean, you said you kind of had an idea of what it was like to be on set and what good or weird direction yeah, was yeah. what I mean, what do you think?
1: Well, directing myself well
0: well what what constitutes good, and good and weird. or weird directing
1: <laughs> oh gosh, look, I think it's it's really different for every actor like and that's what I've probably learned as well um more so no through the shorts too like you think you've got a really great communication style a way of getting into somebody's head and it works really really well with one person and then you apply that same technique to the next person and you realize that that's actually not working for them at all so I'd say there's so many there's probably so many things that constitute good or bad directing but I'd say having an awareness about um the fact that people's brains work very differently and that you need to find an angle and find a way to get through to them and you need to do it in conditions where it's stressful, you're in a rush, there's tension, people are, you know, sensitive. You've you've got to find your way and you've got to find it fast and you've got to be ready to shift um in order to get there.
0: And being able to, I guess, communicate or express yourself clearly and articulately, but in that kind of Uh, in the the high sort of anxiety or stressful situations is fairly key.
1: And try and keep your actor's feeling okay yeah yeah. you know well i don't know maybe some directors are just like whatever i'm stressed they can be stressed but that's not my kind of style i like to try and make my actors feel as good as possible no matter how difficult the situation is whether they're you know freezing to death on a cliff top in minus one degree in a wind tunnel which has happened to us or you Mm -hmm. know um, whatever it may be um i think it's yeah i think it's the ability to adapt to your Like audience so to speak to have a radar into you know different people's minds and how to get in there
0: and so when you went to make these short films um before you made your feature what did you kind of have an idea of the sort of stories that you wanted to tell were you sort of specifically making scripts for shorts or was that just the way that it happened
1: i think like i had i had actually written uh a couple of drafts of, of what if it works it was very different back then it went through you know in a number of, of phases and, and big changes and so actually both the shorts that I made um, had something to do with uh, either a character or or a scene not necessarily super obviously like most people who would see chocolate cake which was the first one probably wouldn't go, oh, right, I totally see how that's connected. They may actually need to ask me like what it is that I think that is, is so connected <laughs> between these two films. But I know in my mind uh, yeah. what I was exploring. So, yeah, I think they both had – it started with the, the gem of the idea was um, something, something to do with either a character or a kind of uh, a scene from the feature and then this whole other beast grew around that each time.
0: Yeah. And yeah. how was the process for you? Did you, was your, uh, understanding of film craft, was that just from, well, not just from, but was it from working on films or did you actually go and study as well to kind of get a understanding?
1: Didn't, I didn't do like directing. I, I did do some screenwriting courses. Um, but yeah, in terms of, um, the directing stuff, it, it's not like I had some amazing knowledge of cameras and lenses and all that sort of thing. Um, but I feel like that is, look, there are some people that, that come from a, like a background in photography and so that's where they're real naturals and they can bring that to the table and, and that's not how I entered. But I sort of feel like if you work with um, a good DP and you, know, you watch a lot of films and you can learn about lenses and cameras and what works and what doesn't, and I guess it's about having trust in a in a DP as well, being able to communicate what you're trying to achieve or you you know your crazy ideas, and then have the DP actually talk you through what is doable and what is doable on that budget and what is doable with that camera, etc. So I think I definitely learnt as I went in that respect, but actually really enjoyed that side of it, like you Know pouring obsessively over the shot list for god knows how long. <laughs> like, I actually strangely really enjoyed um, that part of it. And on the feature film, I worked with Ian Jones, who has done a lot of like, Rolf Tahir's films. And so, he's you know, seasoned, uh, seasoned EP. And, and that was awesome because he had you know, such a wealth of knowledge and experience. And we really had lots of time together in pre production, and it was really good.
0: Mm, oh, it looks great as well. Thank you. Um, what were the uh, challenges that you felt like on a day-to-day basis when you were making these shorts in terms of trying to realize uh like you know from script to screen for the first time
1: i guess um in terms of casting like i didn't i didn't have like uh government funding for the films or anything like that so i didn't go through like a casting agent it was more like reaching out to agents and trying not to drive them too crazy and so um i guess there's a little bit of a risk in there in terms of you're more limited in the people you see and um i guess it was that was one part was challenging was like how to make sure you choose the right actors because without the right actors you really don't have much um that's probably why i cast myself (laughs) because uh (laughs) if i stuff it up it's my own fault and um, I can make myself rehearse like a lunatic. Uh, yeah, I can beat myself up. So um, no, it was probably easier. Definitely, I think, um, having myself in one of the roles. And then, you know, I guess being on it, like with any short film or even really low budget feature, being on such a tight budget it's you know you want to get good people who are experienced who can bring something like a good dp like katie millwright worked on my first shot and you know we're so thrilled that she came on board because that's what you want you want somebody especially in the area that you're less trained in you want somebody really experienced in that area so um i guess how to nab good people in the areas where you have less experience even though you don't have much to offer except Good catering because you know, (laughs) mum always caters, which is what everybody has. Yeah, um, so and um, yeah, I'm trying to think what the other challenges are. I guess work, but I would say working really quickly, but I feel like working really quickly happens in on the feature as well. You know, whether it's weather related or you're behind or whatever it is, there's always the pressure of working much faster than you think uh, or than you plan. But I guess with shorts, you often shoot maybe on a weekend and you've got like a bar that gives you their space for like six hours and after that you really can't come back because like customers are going to start coming in. (laughs) So there's not the option to go like, okay, guys, we're a little bit over and you know the line producer is going to kill me but do you mind staying for another hour? It's like no, customers are going to come in. That said, using real locations, which we did – what if it works, as I was talking, it reminded me of what happened in a supermarket. We got super delayed one morning. We promised this little supermarket that we would be out by, I think it was 8.30. And there was just no way, like we didn't even have... The, our full team on set for various reasons until like 8.15. And I'm pretty sure there was like, you could probably, we could probably hear arguments going on between like the AD and the owners <laughs> of the supermarket. Well, I'm just going, let's just shoot this. Let's just go, 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 Luke, go, go, go. And we're just doing it anyway. Like that sort of stuff is pretty stressful because you, you, you feel like, you know, maybe we've offered them like a small amount of money or or nothing on a short why on earth should they not let their customers in and let these crazy filmmakers keep going? So you definitely get yourself tangled in in those sort of situations, but I feel like somehow, like often, you just get it, like you just get by by the skin of your teeth. So yeah, mm. but probably probably grew a few grey hairs or you know <laughs> lost a lost a few months off my life somewhere.
0: Yeah, I <laughs> I think when you're in that situation, it does become like a not life and death obviously but it yeah. feels like you just need to do whatever it takes to appease the people that need to give you the yes that you can just finish off what you need yeah. to do yeah like Except give throw them money at them, them hold yeah. up the store whatever
1: <laughs> it is like it, you're right it does start to feel like life and it's like we have to get this in we can't leave like and you think probably you, you might die if you don't yeah um, yeah so true so true <laughs>
0: Yeah, oh. there's a reason that they call it drama.
1: Yeah, we are so dramatic.
0: Yeah, uh, and w- did you feel like there was a difference between the first short that you made and the second short that you made, in terms of your process?
1: Um, well, the first short was actually a longer short, and we spent longer shooting it, so it was all up a bigger production. The second short, um, we really we shot it really in a day and a bit so that was a little bit crazy but i want to say in some ways it was easier because it was all set you know in one room and whereas the, the shot before that had like too many locations and <laughs> you know i've set as i said this scene in a bar that i'm reflecting on and i was like, oh okay we need like 60 people in there and that that was my one shot where you round up everyone you possibly know like please please do this for me and then flash forward 4 years later you're your, you know producers telling you we can't afford any more extras on this feature film and now it's your feature film and it's like i blew it oh, I, I had those guys <laughs> in that day for that short they couldn't believe they couldn't actually speak out loud lunch was hot dogs it really wasn't that exciting and they are not coming back to help me on a tuesday um, because I need extras, you know, to stand around in in winter in the middle of a laneway in Brunswick. They're at work now because <laughs> they've grown up, and I've lost I've lost my chances anyway. So I've basically got relatives, maybe like my grandfather, but you know, that's about it. Yeah. So, so yeah. the
0: lesson is don't blow your wad on a short film.
1: Yes, but the thing is, how do you not? Because you really don't have anything to bargain with. Yeah, you know? I mean,
0: if they were working, they wouldn't have been able to come the second time anyway, so...
1: That's exactly right. And the short, of course, was shot over a weekend because you're not going to disrupt anybody's, you know, real job Monday to Friday. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, maybe the lesson is shoot your scenes with extras on weekend days and you might have a chance at getting some of those suckers back in. Yeah. <laughs> ah
0: you started writing what if it works in about 2010
1: yeah something like that yep well maybe even 2009 i think just looking back i think the short was 2010 so yeah probably about oh nine. yeah wow. just a casual nine years ago no big deal
0: yeah no biggie and when you started writing it what was your kind of forecast for it at that point in time
1: Um, you mean what, what sort of film or like, what did I think it was going to do market wise or what did I hope?
0: Well, I guess what was your ambition in terms of when realistically, what did you, how long did you think it would take to get made? What did you think it would do for you career wise? What did you kind of hope? How did you hope it would play out?
1: Okay. So I should have probably had all of those thoughts, (laughs) but instead I was Young and silly, and just really passionate about the subject matter and uh, the characters. And I I just believed in the project itself, and I, I desperately wanted to make it. And of course I wanted to you know get an established producer on board and I'm sure like vaguely, I knew that I wanted people to see it. But I really didn't think in the, in that way. I just thought about getting the script right. It was always just probably the next immediate step. Get this script right because I really want to make this film and then get the right producer and take it from there. That's really probably all I thought about, which, you know, I mean, it probably is smart to think about audience and marketing and all that stuff, you know, on reflection from the beginning, Um But that's part of the learning curve that you go through, whether it be going through government agencies for funding and having them sit across the boardroom table and say, well, who is the audience for this film? (laughs) That's what we want to know. Oh, it's everyone. (laughs) Well, it can't be everyone. Okay, you learn that is the worst answer you can ever give anybody. It's nothing is for everybody. Um, Female, 40 plus, like whatever. Um, no, those are those are good things to think about. But what happened was I did get a good producer on the film, a guy called Tristram Mile who's produced films like Strictly Ballroom and um The Black Balloon and yeah, wow. Looking for Ali Brandy and some some solid films. So of course that was my plan, which wasn't too silly because he had experience and you know, in making these these wonderful films and he knew the ropes and the, the steps to take and Um, And through working with him and then having some development funding from Screen Australia and that whole long process of attaching distributors and sales agents and, you know, you do – You do start to realize you have to think about the marketplace and who the film is for, and you know, is it working? And um, uh, is it three films in one? And do you need to pair back? And do you need to, you know, the the character that you thought was the protagonist is are they really the protagonist, or is it a dual protagonist story? And is it should be more about you know who you thought was a supporting character? So all those sorts of things can take place, and you're you are confronted with all of those questions, and um, so that. That probably those thoughts happened over the course of a number of years of working on the script and working with Triss and going through all that, you know, begging and borrowing and stealing, trying to get the film up. And yeah, now it's 2018. Flash forward. Let's hope it's not nine years uh, till <laughs> I get the next one made. That's all I can say.
0: How early on did uh, Tristan come on board?
1: Pretty early. He was on board probably within a. The first year or two So He's also been On the journey For about eight years Yeah Yep
0: What was it about the story That you found So compelling That you felt like You know This is something That you just had to Get
1: out So The film is a love story and it's about a guy called Adrian who is a tech nerd who has really severe OCD or obsessive compulsive disorder. He kind of crashes into his new neighbour Grace who is a street artist um, and she has multiple personality disorder, also now known as dissociative identity disorder. So you may think like, well, where on earth did I come up with (laughs) this kind of, you know... uh, Obstacle-filled, uh, ridiculous tale of romance, and it's really all comes from uh, either my well, basically my personal experience in a couple of different ways. My own brother has a very severe case of OCD, and he's very much like Adrian in the film. And my aunt is a psychiatrist, and she specialises in patients with multiple personality disorder. So, for example, at the moment she probably has thirty or so patients with that disorder at any given time, really, and she's done this for years and years and years. So I had, I guess, this really privileged access to um, to multiple personality disorder or DID through my aunt, and I was interested in it just because I found it fascinating for years, and she used to share stories, case studies, literature, all that sort of stuff, um, and then when I thought, you know what, this is, this is so fascinating and intriguing and moving, I think I want to write something about this – I realized that I couldn't just read books about it I knew I knew the OCD because I've I lived with it my whole life my brother's suffered with it since I was five so that's pretty much my household but I knew I knew I needed to know the DID in the same way and my aunt was actually able to allow me to come into some therapy sessions with a few of her patients over a really long period of time where I got to know them and I got to understand them and uh witness the process of switching from one part to another which is something that grace does in the film Um, so i guess i knew i had the privileged access to the to that side of it and i found it really compelling and really moving and i'd grown up with a, a very unusually severe case of ocd in my family and i think sometimes you know when you're thinking about what you want to write for your first project it often is deeply personal And it often is something that you happen to have privileged access to. Um, And as for how do these two people come together, my mum's also a therapist, just to add to it, Um, and she shares a practice with my aunt, and they told me many stories of, of people coming together in clinics, like wild tales where you think, no, this couldn't possibly work, but like somehow it does like my aunt has had at the time of my research a patient who had multiple personality disorder or has it she was in a relationship with another lady who also has multiple personality disorder between them there was something like you know 30 or 40 parts and then they had kids and ex-husbands and all sorts of things and what i saw was an amazingly patient um sort of tolerant uh compassionate situation where like perhaps because they both had so much trauma and struggle and they could actually stop and, and, and cope with it and appreciate it and understand it and I found that really incredible. So I guess that's the inspiration for how this story came about. Yeah. Which I'm not even sure it was your question, but I've been rambling, I think.
0: I think my question was something in that space. Okay, great. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> lucky, lucky.
0: Very lucky. Um, so you you felt compelled by this uh access that you had as well as your own personal experience and you said that it kind of uh completely changed over time or evolved over time as in the story that you told where did it kind of begin and how did it evolve or what caused it to evolve
1: so i think it began with a story more centered around grace who's the person with multiple personality disorder um so i started with you know all that research through my aunt and and I thought she's going to be the protagonist It's really going to be a film about her, but I want it to be a story about somebody else who's got their own issues that she meets. Hmm, who should that be? I'm like, hmm, looking around, OCD. Yeah, I know that one. (laughs) Easy, don't have to research the same way I did for for this. Um, And I guess as I wrote the character of Adrian, probably because he's so real and I have so much experience with this character and he's a very... um, you know, he's, he's got a very happy nature and he's a very um, caring, you know, big hearted kind of character despite his limitations. I think uh, as I started to write Adrian, very at various stages, whether it was producer or distributor or funding bodies, people were responding to Adrian's character. So he ended up filtering in and, and sort of taking a much bigger part of the story uh than i intended but you know having been to a number of film festivals which is sort of like therapy when you sit down with the other first time directors you look at like what people have made whether it's their doc or their you know narrative and so often it's something that's so close to them and that's their first you know kind of film so i'm like right this is a thing yeah this is a thing that it filters in it's like you need to get it off your chest it's in your your first film. yeah yeah yeah
0: I mean, what was it? What was it like for you growing up with someone who had this OCD? Um, and I, you mentioned earlier that he was—I'm assuming—older than you. Yeah. Uh, how do you feel as though that experience kind of shaped your creativity?
1: Um, you know that it—it it probably happened so subconsciously. I think it's probably hard to know consciously exactly what went on, but. I mean, I guess I don't really know any different. Being the younger sister and the fact that you know it it started in him at a really young age. I don't I don't really know what it would be like to grow up in a house without it. Um, but it probably did because there was a bit of an age gap and because he had limitations and it was complex and 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 whatnot and difficult. I think I probably did spend quite a lot of time on my own. In a bit of a made-up world, so um, between that and my parents dragging me off to the theatre, and then they'd bring me back home, and I'd go into a playroom and create an entire sort of story that was like an ongoing—I don't know—soap opera. Um, I think that I think it probably it probably did mean I spent more time in an imaginary place. That's one side of it, and I think the other side is when you grow up as a kid and you know that there's something very different or unusual about your family and you know that there's behavior that other people are looking at like curiously and that they find odd or hard to understand you become quite vigilant and quite aware of behavior generally you start you notice the kids noticing you or your brother and you look very hard at other people and observe what are they doing and how are they different and what are their family dynamics and I think uh I think when you have something like that going in your own family, you, you probably generally become very observant of human behavior. Um, you're sensing, you're watching, you know, and, and on top of that, I suppose I have a mom and an aunt who I'm close to who are both psychotherapists and psychiatrists. So just for a bit of lighthearted yeah. chit-chat, <laughs> you know, we could get into a little psychoanalysis here and there. So this probably explains me completely. <laughs> We've solved you. Yeah, we've solved me. That's it. This is therapy for me now. Yeah. In a podcast. Great. Good work, (laughs) Romy.
0: So once you had established the script and um, Tristan was on board and we're 400 years into the process, (laughs) how did you actually go about starting to, well, what was the point where you decided, okay, it's time to get some money and actually make this? And then what was that process like?
1: That's all a big blur because it's went over went over so many years. But I think the first thing we did was get some uh, development funding from Screen Australia, which we were successful with. So that was great. Um, and then once we felt the script was ready, we probably went out to – I'm trying to remember if we went out to a distributor. We may have because it's kind of good to test the water and see – you know, it's all good and well that your script editor likes your film or that your producer likes your film. But it I think it is good to put it in the hands of a distributor from a marketing perspective and say, well, what do they make of this? And do they have feedback? Because sometimes that's really useful and it's really different feedback to what you get just from like an editor or or from a, a funding body. Um, so I think we probably did do that to test the waters a little bit. Uh, and then we, we were trying for production funding from the funding bodies and um at the time we were in a round I think with about 22 projects uh you know first time director you know I don't I think they funded two or three uh we weren't one of them incredibly disappointing especially because you know you get the development funding and you think right well we're in now and you know and it's just not the case I mean it's limited and uh it's hard it's really hard I think at this point screen australia is has actually come out and said they they're they're not going to support um emerging first timers it's too risky and whatnot they actually want to support people that have more of a proven track record and look as a business uh anyway we won't, we won't go into that mm. discussion <laughs> uh, but there was no gender matters around at that time um so uh who knows maybe maybe it could have been different but So that was a little bit disappointing and we had to then rethink, okay, well, that was going to be a big chunk of the budget. What are we going to do now? We were always going to go in for something called the producer's offset, whereby you get 40% of your budget back in tax the next year, which is extremely helpful, like massively so, without which we never would have been able to make the film. So I'm very grateful for that. And we knew we'd need to cobble it together with uh, like a facilities deal from a post-production house um, and some private investment as well. Um, so I think uh, we were lucky in that we, we we had a great deal with a post-production facility up in Sydney. That was really huge. Again, without, without that, we never would have been able to make the film. Um, that was with Definition Films. Um, and then we knew we had to cobble it together, but we needed more private than we thought. And that's really, really hard, you know, convincing people that, Investing in an independent film, the first-time director, is, is you know, financially smart, is basically impossible <laughs> um, you know and stupid. You shouldn't try and convince anybody that that's you know that's, you're, that they're backing a real winner because it's just so difficult. <laughs> um, so I guess we had to find people who connected to the subject matter and for one reason or another in a more philanthropic sort of way were happy to take a risk. It's an investment. But they had to know that, of course, it's a risk and it's not, you know, Mad Max Fury Road or um, or whatever. So that all took a lot longer than we hoped because uh, it was hard and um, and we did reduce the budget down from, we started at one level and we cut, cut, cut in order to be able to get there, basically. So, um, but, you know, it, it worked in the end and, and we managed to do it for that lower budget and you know, you, you write a script and you think it's at a certain level and then you think, well, it's impossible. We'll never be able to cut, you know, a million dollars out of this and somehow you do. So it's given me a faith that, you know, just as you think there's nothing left to cut, there's always something <laughs> else to cut. So Yeah. Yeah.
0: So you answered the question of what if it works?
1: Ha ha ha. Yeah.
0: Sorry, that was a really poor joke. <laughs>
1: I've had many I'm you can sure. imagine.
0: Yeah. I'm sure you have. Okay. So I mean you had amazing cast uh, as well as a great crew what was the process for you like of assembling this great team obviously with some tremendous limitations
1: yeah tricky uh Tricky. I think that's probably where having gone through short films where you think, oh, nobody's gonna work for me. It's probably good to have gone through that that process and be like, okay, well, at least we have some money now. This isn't nothing. We're offering more than hot dogs. Um, <laughs> it's definitely vegan options, at least, you know. Um, so yeah, look, it was um it was definitely tricky. Probably one of the harder elements was that suddenly the money came together and suddenly we realized that we needed to sort of start shooting by a particular date and I can't recall if it was the actor's availability or a particular head of department or but for whatever reason it, it suddenly came together and we went oh you know what we've got we actually got to like start now pre-pre production has to start right now and that shoot's got to happen like June 1 and that's it I'm like oh my god so Uh, a one of the hardest parts is that when you don't have a huge amount of lead time like people are busy and on other projects and just getting people like who are on projects even to have the time to read the script and then to let you know if they're available so there was that that kind of level of stress of just waiting on people come on have a read let us know and you know um but again it was one of those things where uh it it somehow all fell into place and it, it we had a mix of Um, of some really experienced people like we had you know our our sound department was super experienced and a bit older and so was our DP and then we had like production designer Ella Carey who's young and awesome and talented and um, you know just as I was feeling like uncertain of of what we were going to do with that particular department Ella came into the picture I was just like amazing this is Perfect, like so thrilled and, and that was quite late in the piece and the same with our costume designer, Helen Fitzgerald. So we, we put together a mix of, of experienced and less so um, and I think they were in the right spots as well. And with cast, I think the one advantage we had with this script is that they're such complex, rich characters. They're such, both of the lead roles are so challenging that um, they are appealing roles for many actors um, and we actually attached Luke um, years earlier. So um, I watched a lot of different actors' performances wanting to just be open-minded to a number of people, and, and it just kept coming back to Luke, and it's probably pretty obvious that I'd seen him in the black balloon, and, you know, I was pretty blown away by by that performance, and, and then I went and watched everything else he'd done. And was like, yep, he still <laughs> nailed it. Yep, he nailed it there too. Yep um and so I had a confidence that I knew he was like a, a, a sort of a method actor somebody who would like throw himself in many months before the rehearsal started and sure enough he did he was walking around Sydney with his arms in the air and avoiding doorways and lifting up toilet seats with his feet and um yes yeah, manifesting OCD for a, a very long time so much so that when he turned up he had his whole set of rules and regulations of what he could not couldn't touch and I was like, he's going Daniel Day Lewis on me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, but I like that that level of commitment. Um, so that was kind of easy because Luke was attached, and then with the role of Grace or Grace and G and Spike, etc., we just put out a really wide casting call. Um, there were times where distributors or sales agents said you should just try and get the most sort of famous person you can for the role because that's what's smart in terms of getting people people's bums on seats. Um, but, in light of the fact that it wasn't going to be like Kate Blanchett, you know, um, you, you have to question with Australian cinema whether somebody of a reasonable level of fame is is in an independent project like mine really going to bring bums on seats or not, or if it's just a little bit of a confidence thing for the agents. and And at the end of the day we we sort of investigated that path and found that if we we wanted to have somebody as the, you know the most known person we could think of that was appropriate, we would have had to offer the part to them and playing a role where you play four parts, you know, with somebody with multiple personality disorder, it's such a complicated, tricky role. I just, I didn't, I couldn't imagine handing that role to somebody without seeing a test. Um, There'd be a few actresses of course out there in the world that maybe you would do that with, but um, it it seemed like just way too much of a risk. So in the end we said, no, forget that let's just put out a casting call and just find somebody who's super talented and it doesn't matter. That's what we need. We need to know that she's she can do this and she can nail it 150%. And Anna Sampson uh, has done a lot of theater. She's been at the MTC and now Malthouse and in, um, she's she's brilliant in the theater. So that was more of her background but that also I guess gave her a kind of a fitness in terms of you know theatre actors know how to play four characters in a night um, and poor thing she was in a play for the first few weeks of our shoot she was actually running from oh, wow. a play where she I think had four or five roles to our set where she had four parts um, hmm. and somehow she just did it all and worked like a champion and um, so yeah we saw lots of tests but I had a, a great gut feeling about anna from the first test but then in my own ocd sort of way i um i i felt compelled to watch all the tests and do the callbacks and make sure i gave lots of people a chance and you know didn't sort of overlook anybody but it wasn't difficult in that my gut was always really solid about her so
0: and when you went to actually start shooting what was first day on set like? Do
1: you know what's funny? You sort of think, oh, I'll make my first feature film first day on set. It's going to be absolutely terrifying. And oh, God, no. How's it going to work? And pre-production is actually so stressful. Like getting things together, getting everything in place, all those moving pieces, often which just as you think they're there, something gives way. And, you you know, back to square one with something and it goes on for it feels like a long time just trying to get everything in gear get ready get ready get ready get ready it's like before a race or like there comes a point where you don't want the anticipation anymore you just (laughs) want to do the job you know enough preparation you just want to be there and i remember thinking oh my god i day one must be so scary and i'm by the time we're at the end of our pre I was just like yep just get me there like I'm done with pre-production goodbye I want to move into this next chapter so it was actually weirdly a relief to start just to actually start stop talking and let's just start um and day one actually if I recall I think we finished ahead of time I was like this is so good but it's probably some sort of twisted bad omen it's like gonna happen (laughs) just this day and never again and we we certainly had some some crazy shit go on i i i had a Back uh, episode, I slipped a disc into my back and was rushed to emergency surgery on day eight of the shoot. So, as you do, <laughs> it probably was a bad omen that things weren't going to go to schedule. As you do, spent a few days in intensive care. Was told I had to go home and recover for three months. That was not an option. Obviously, I'd shot eight days. I had locations, hot sets, actors who had other jobs to go to. So, I um, I had to convince the surgeon to let me go. Back to work after eight days, which was kind of mm. nuts, but. Um, it
0: just took a lot of endone.
1: Well, the thing was, I was on a lot of morphine at the time making these decisions, <laughs> then it was like, yeah, it'll be all right. And. Um, I
0: can do anything. I can do
1: anything. I feel fine. It doesn't matter. I can't stand up. And then. Uh, and then, of course, I was like, well, no, you can't go to set on morphine. you make a different type of film completely. <laughs> it's colorful enough, the movie. Um, so I ripped off the morphine patch and that was not so funny anymore. Mm. But that's a whole other story. But, hey, it worked out in the end. Yep. Um, but, yes, needless to say, it didn't all go as smoothly as that first day where we finished ahead yeah. of time. We finished eight days uh, later than anticipated based on my surgical adventures yeah so.
0: well all things considered that's probably not horrible
1: no could have been could have been could have been worse could have yeah how's yeah. your back now let's not talk about it all right yeah
0: so why comedy why romantic comedy is that something that you've always been interested in have you always had a kind of comic or comedic sensibility is it like your dad just didn't stop making horrible jokes while you were growing up. And How did you
1: know that? It's <laughs> the Jewish thing. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, oh, Dad. Same Sorry, yeah, dad. Sorry, Dad. Not terrible jokes. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So I had to find a way to be funnier. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think. Um, I think for a story, I've, I think I've always enjoyed that comedy drama zone. Um, my play was in that zone. My short films are in that zone. Uh, again, I don't know if it was a conscious decision or that's just how I see stories and how I see life. I think uh, maybe growing up in a household that was a little bit, you know, complex and, 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 and crazy, you kind of, you can be all gloom and doom about things or you can kind of try and use your sense of humor to help you get through Um, and I think probably even my brother has a great sort of kind of self-awareness and sense of humor and I think he uses that and I think we would use that so I think there were times where stuff was going down and you know we'd be like ripping our hair out or like feeling pretty crap and then next minute you sort of like you do a double take on the scenario and you go wow this is this is pretty absurd what's happening here and next thing you know you're in fits of laughter and I think that those things really do live side by side there are so many moments where depending on who's there the balance of the day you, you could cry or you could laugh or you could possibly do both within a short space of time and I think that's really really true and I like that space so um, I think with a story like this it was a very natural place for the story to be at you could definitely tell a story about people with mental um, health struggles that is very dark and very depressing and very bleak that's not generally my view and my sort of style and I felt like if I told a story about multiple personality disorder and I just, you know, delved into the fact that oh well it stems from abuse and it's, you know, and that's all we focused really on, like more like a documentary on the how it happens, why, etc. I I knew it might have been interesting, but I also knew it probably wasn't going to be something people would want to connect to or recommend to their friends because it would be so much that they might have, you know, mm-hmm. adverse reaction to it. So I think uh, when you throw a little bit of comedy in it's a lot easier to tell certain truths
0: mm. have you had any poor responses to the film or has it been mostly very positive
1: i actually haven't um i've had a lot of i mean there might be people who've watched it and hated it i'm sure there are um but i've I've been to quite a number of festivals now and in, in, in different countries and different cities and Generally speaking, a lot of people that will stand up in a Q and A or wait till after the Q and A to want to come and talk to me are actually people who either suffer with something themselves or have a sibling or a parent or a partner either with OCD or with um, you know schizophrenia or an array of 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 issues. And I've often ended up having these really um, kind of really quite intimate discussions with strangers. This happens like a lot and um and i think uh i think a lot i've had enough feedback now to know that it that it has worked for those people and uh i think it's given some people hope or just uh or even just sh- shown them people that are similar to the people they love on screen which is a good thing i think so Um, I've had letters from people with multiple personality disorder telling me how they felt and why they found it accurate and what it means to them that somebody like that is shown on a screen. And, you know, one person wrote to me and said, like, I hope with a film like that, it might make it a bit easier for me to tell somebody that I have multiple personality disorder because it presented in a way where you love these characters, you understand them, you love them and you root for them, um, and they're accessible, um. But yeah, so it's hard to sort of um, not sound like I'm blowing my own trumpet. But I've been I've been very moved. I've been very touched by the reactions of you know whether it was a mum of a boy who has schizophrenia and this was in America. She waited to the end. She didn't want to speak in public. She came up to me afterwards and she just said like Thank you, just thank you so much." Like. For presenting these characters as lovable for showing the humanity, and um, because it's you know it's not all dark and bleak and, and and horrible, and and I love my son, and you love your brother, and um, and so yeah, it's a that's one of the probably the nicest element is the connection you have with with other people who have suffered and struggled and um, and wrestled with with these sorts of issues in their kind of sphere. Um, that's been more important than the review a review or you know just um yeah so yeah
0: (laughs) i could imagine that would be very gratifying
1: yeah as you said you know you know that you're not going to make squillions of dollars so like what is what is the reward at the end and if you know that you've managed to connect with people um it it means so much like it just means so much so I'm not going to retire on those feelings, unfortunately. (laughs) going to retire
0: on a big pile of feelings.
1: Yeah, yeah. Just going to retire on the feelings.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Well, hopefully it won't take Uh, another nine years to make the next one. And it may be a little bit more straightforward.
1: Hopefully. I'm going to touch a little wood now. Right. Yeah.
0: I don't know if it's wood or not. Looks like it has some sort of wax coat on it.
1: Uh, It'll get through.
0: All right. (laughs) Message has got through. Uh, Um, Thank you so much for coming and chatting with me, Uh, aside from iTunes, which is where I watched the film. Where else Mm -hmm. can uh, anyone who's listening find it if they'd like to watch it? In Australia.
1: In Australia. Um, So, it's Google Play, iTunes. um, There's something called AusFlix, which is a channel for Australian films. Um, And it's available on DVD for those people who still have a DVD player. And there are people who still like to watch it on DVD. Mm um
0: there's something about a tactile experience it's quite nice yeah
1: you get to hold it open it it's got all this lovely artwork and so it is available at you know your good old jb hi-fi and good uh, dvd <laughs> and retailers and we uh, our distributor label is um selling it direct um through um their company too so if you hit up our website which is www.whatifworksmovie.com, um you can access a direct purchase that way too if you are so inclined
0: if you are so inclined thank you very much and I uh, finish all of my conversations with the same question question is what makes you silly
1: what makes me silly like why am I I need to like qualify constantly don't I um what why am I silly or like
0: it's grammatically ambiguous
1: is this like um what's the show is this like James Corden's guy like the musician who asks like questions that are do you know What I'm talking about,
0: I know who James Corden is, but I can't it's say I've watched this the show. i
1: a musician who asks questions like they're not, they're, they're less straightforward than this one. Put right. it, I, I should never go on the James Corden show, <laughs> and put it that way, because like I don't think the idea is to ask a question back. I think it's the number one rule as to what not to do. Um,
0: I have no rules. I'm
1: really silly in so many ways. Um, why I'm silly probably explain that in this whole podcast but i'm like (laughs) totally silly because being silly is the best it's fun you need to be silly yeah can't be too serious
0: what what's what are some of your go-to silly things
1: oh probably stupid dancing like i love like hearing a funny track like a 90s track or an 80s track or just a really hilarious song and you know getting out on an actual dance floor and just pulling some really ridiculous moves but like for a while yeah and getting into it and you know people around you at first like nah but then like they get on board and then like you've got a crew of people doing stupid moves that's probably my favorite type of silliness
0: (laughs) harks back to the 12 year old disco yeah exactly the line dancing exactly yeah i remember that (laughs) as well Thanks so much, Rami.
1: Thank you.